You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this week's episode, we chat with a four-time world champion who played an unplanned role as his team took home the title in Penticton recently. And our other guest this week is the skip of a young Alberta team who have won three titles already this season as they continue to work towards what they hope is a return to the Scotties in February. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. With experience and success comes a confidence to be open with one's opinions. And our first guest, Glenn Howard, has certainly earned the right to share what he thinks about the present and future of the sport. Glenn joined me for a wide-ranging conversation which included how his team closed out their title run in Penticton without him being on the ice. We also discussed his role as a coach for Team Jennifer Jones. And of course, I asked for Glenn's opinions on some of the sport's hot-button topics. So, Glenn, it had not been the uh, best start to the season for your team. Still, you went to one of the better events on tour in Penticton and came home with the title despite having to deal with some uh, personnel issues while you were there. Can you share what happened with our audience and how impressive it was for your team to win the event given the circumstances? Right on, uh, Frank. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me. This is great. And I also want to just shout out to the New Floors Penticton Bondsville. It's the favorite stop for us on tour. It always has been. Um, they just put on a first class show. Uh, the money is incredible. The, the, the committee, they can't do enough for you. Uh, you know, they, I just, it's just unbelievable what they do for the curlers and everybody talks about it. And I just, I want to give them a shout out because I just think it's the best done tour. Uh, every, every other bond spiel in our, in, in the world should, uh, have a look at them for, uh, and put them as the benchmark because they absolutely do a, a bang up job and I can't thank them enough. So that was the first thing, but yeah, back to, um, competing, uh, uh, my knee has been a little suspect uh, at the start of the year. Uh, I had to play lead for a couple of events, and then it got really good, and I, I skipped the last two, and it, you know, looked like I was right on the on the on the road to uh, where I wanted to be. And uh, I, we played the first four games. I skipped uh, as usual. We went three and one. We were doing great. I was playing good. The boys were playing good. And then the, right at the end of the fourth game, all of a sudden, my knee got really, really sore. And it, and it, and lack of a better phrase, Frank, it seized up. It, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what went on. Finished that game uh, about two o'clock on Saturday. Got off the ice. I go, oh my god, this knee is getting not getting better. Uh, as the night went on, it got worse. Got up Sunday morning to play the last game of the round robin, and I could barely walk. I was hobbling around. I said, boys, I'm out. Um, unfortunately, I, I hate that. Uh, I hate to do it to you, but uh, I can't curl. So without a you know without a blink of an eye, Scott, he said, no problem, Dad. I'm I'm good to go. So Scott skipped, uh, Dave and Tim uh, threw three each. So they went with three uh, three players. And lack of a better way of putting it, Frank, it was inspiring. The three of them put on a clinic. They put on a show. They raised the bar. Uh, they raised their game to to new heights. Uh, it was unbelievable. They, it's like they didn't – it was almost like they had something to prove, which is not the case. And um, But, yeah, we I think we went in the whole bond spiel as an underdog. We haven't had a great year, to, to, to quote you, and – you're right. Um, we've just come on the last couple of events, played pretty good with me back skipping. So that worked out well. But then, you know, Scotty jumped into the role. He was unbelievable. Dave and Tim were unbelievable. And to beat, you know, to win five straight to go on and win this thing against, you know, I think all five games were with teams in the top 15 in the world. 
uh, was unbelievable. So uh, I, I, I was super proud of them and, uh, and super impressed, to be honest with you. A couple of seasons ago, uh, Glenn, you told me in an interview that it would be difficult for you and the team to work your way through a long event like the Briar and the win, but that you still felt that on any given day, you could beat any team in the world. When you see the boys bring their A-plus game like they did on the weekend in Penticton while playing without you, is there a part of the old curling warrior in Glenn Howard that, given the right circumstances, believes you could challenge for another Briar title? Whether we could be, yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, we got a we got a bunch of breaks along the way, and in, in, in this weekend, and that's what happens. Sometimes they go your way, sometimes we had a couple of huge ones where uncharacteristic misses from our opposition, which you think, where does that come from? But on the same token, we pressed it. Like the boys played so well, we pressed well. I, I again, when I've been playing late, I played well. We know, and I, in my heart of hearts, know we can beat anybody on the planet at any given time. The difference between us right now and those teams is consistency. We just can't can't seem to consistently play like that, whereas the, the the best teams in the world year in and year out are just consistently good. They very rarely have bad games, so they, when they play really well, they beat most teams, and when they play great, they win all their games. And we have the ability to do that. We just don't have the consistency, and that's that's sort of the difference. But I every time I lace up in the shoes, as does my team, I don't care who we're playing. We think we can beat them, and I, I'm a full believer in that. I know we have the ability. I know we have the talent. It's just a matter you got to go produce that on the ice. That's the hard part. And uh, it's confidence and everything. And, and, and my three guys just proved that, you know, a little bit of adversity and they raised the bar and they beat, like you said, uh, five top 15 teams in the world and they won every game. So that just got solidifies the fact that you can do it. And it's just you just have to believe it and go, go, uh, go try and do it on the ice. Now, Glenn, back when you were in the early portions of your elite curling career, the tour consisted of events across the country, some drawing as many as 64 teams for a triple knockout. Now, the slams have been good for the sport, but is it fair to say that one of the negatives of the landscape created as a result of the slams is that it's gotten increasingly difficult for young Canadian teams to measure themselves against and learn from some of the top teams in the country, considering that the top teams mostly play in the slams and an increasingly small number of tour events? I, I, I agree 100%. Uh, first of all, the Slam series has been uh, uh, unbelievable for curling. I think they've uh, they brought curling to the next level. Um, I love the Slams. I love everything about them. Uh, um, I think it's been fantastic for, for the game, for the curlers, for every, you know, the, the curlers can make a little bit of money now. It was hard to make any money, and they can actually win, win some games and, and bring some cash home because it's not a very lucrative sport by any stretch of the imagination. The only downfall, and you nailed it, is... Because there's the slams and a lot of these big teams, they sort of um, uh, kind of, I don't know, they put their year together and they uh, uh, based around the slam. So if you have five slams and they want to play three other events, they'll pick those and that's it. Whereas before, you're right, you'd play eight events, but they'd be all over the country and you could play anybody anywhere. And that, to your point again, is yes, some of these teams will never get a chance to play Brad Gushu and never get a chance to play, uh, uh, you know, Botcher and Cooey and this sort of thing. And um, that is where you learn. That's what my brother and I did back in the early 80s. We'd jump on an airplane and fly out west with our guys and we'd uh, play against the, the best of the best in just a random bond spiel. That's all we had. Um, and that we learned a ton. You learn a ton from doing that. And uh, that is the only negative. But um, and then the other side of the coin is it's it's points driven, too. So if you know, you got to keep your points up so you can you can't limit yourself too much to playing a limited schedule, because if you don't do well in some of these slams and you don't well, all of a sudden you drop like an anchor 
and then you don't get into some of these events. So there is a bit of a catch-22 there, but um, I, I agree with you. It, it's I would love to see there's some of the best um, events I can think back you know, over the last 25 years that are gone. They've gone the way of the dodo bird, and there's uh, they're not. I don't think they're coming back. And uh, what I again, the Penticton's of the world is the closest I've ever seen to that old sort of bond spiel. Um, and, and we had another one this year, uh, Ryan Arndon had one in the Sioux that was, again, same sort of like, feel. Those two, to me, have the best feel uh, of, of events in, in the country now. And uh, I, I, if that's a sign of where we're going to go, I love it. Um, unfortunately, the other side of the coin is the big guys will follow the purse. If the purse isn't very big, they're not going to go. It just doesn't make, make sense to them. And uh, ice conditions is another one. If the purse could be great, but if the ice is crappy, they're not going to go. So there's uh, a lot of things that are go into it now, whereas back in the day, if the purse was good, we're going no matter what. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of things to think about. But I think, um, again, the slams are amazing for curling. That's the only little bit of a, a downfall because of them. You're right. Some of the big boys don't play uh, uh, in, in as many spiels as they used to. You just mentioned a couple of the better attended non-slam events on tour, Glenn. One of the challenges for many tour events is the fact that there's no standardized schedule in curling, unlike in golf or tennis as examples, where the majors tend to be held on the same weeks each year. The slams in curling will occasionally move an event ahead or back by a week, and that has a trickle-down effect on tour events because the players on the top teams typically plan their schedules around the slams, and if an event ends up a week closer to a slam or a week further removed from a slam, it can have an impact on the field they can attract. Now, I'm not blaming the slams. They're doing what they need to do when it comes to securing venues and accommodating TV schedules, but do you believe that a standardized schedule that does not change from year to year might help some of these tour events gain more traction, attract better teams, and give chances to some of these Tier 2 teams to measure themselves against the better teams in the country and some of the better teams in the world. I totally understand that. And that's, it's funny you say that, Frank. We've, uh, you know, we've always been batting around players associations and uh, you know, stuff like that. And one of the main, I remember all these, over these years when we've tried to form that association, um, one of the main topics has always been a standardized schedule. And that that's massive. And to your point, it, it's unfortunate. I feel I feel bad. Like I, I I don't know what the logistics are like when the when the the slams are trying to put it together, and you know the crew are trying to find a, a city with an open arena when there's no hockey and there's this and it's you know it's available and perfect world if they could put all those events on the same weekend every year. Wow, would that make life easier for everybody? Because unfortunately, the the old uh, you know, the DeKalb uh, spiel is on, maybe is on the same weekend every year and uh, a slam all of a sudden gets in there, they have to change. And that just throws a loop into their whole, um, you know, whole process. And the other side of the coin too is, as well is, is, is playdowns. Like why, why can't we all play provincial playdowns on the same weekend? Like if you do that, then that just frees up more time. And we've talked about, Surely to God that can be done. I could just, it may be, well, it may be a lot easier than I, than I think, or a lot harder than I think, but if a standardized schedule and then, and then, um, yeah, um, yeah, more, the Morris spiel can be on the same weekend every year because they know that they're not going to get a conflict from the slam or another spiel or whatever. And life would be better. So, I, but I, for some reason, that's never the case. You're right. The slams do go all over the map a bit. Uh, and but I'm not privy as to why. Obviously, it's it's got to be a logistical problem trying to find arenas. That's got to be it. Glenn, you and I did an interview about six years ago when eight of the top 11 teams in the world on the men's side were Canadian. Not only did Canada have depth, but it also had high quality depth. 
The teams from other countries were improving at that time, but Canada still had an exceptional roster of elite players sprinkled over several teams. As we speak today, Glenn, Canada currently only has four of the top 11 teams in the world rankings. Now, in part, that's because of the improvement by teams from other countries, but is it fair to say that it's also partly due to the increasing gap between the top four or five men's teams in Canada and the rest of the Canadian teams that compete on tour? It certainly seems, Glenn, like Canada is much more top-heavy than it was just a few short years ago. Yeah, so it's interesting. It depends what 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 eyes you're looking through. Concern from... Yeah, the product we have is fine. The product we have in Canada is, is fantastic. We've got amazing curlers. We do still have more depth in our country than any other country. It's not even close. Um, now, when you, if you put all the other European countries together or all the Asian countries together and played a Ryder Cup, phew, I'm not sure we're going to win. But uh, as far as countries go, we still got the most depth. The thing is, we have got to come to grips with we're not going to medal every time anymore. Those days are gone. And it's not because we're not because our product isn't as good as it ever. It's probably better than it's ever been in Canada, our curling in Canada. The problem being is the other countries, and again, they have become so much better than they were. So they've come up, or even in some cases passed us in, in some of these teams, and they are unbelievable curlers. And so it's not a matter of, like, so it's not a matter of do we have to get that much better. We're really good. It's just we have to understand the fact that these other countries are just as good or better. So if we could try and find ways to get even better, then that's great. But we, we are not going to podium. Yeah. You know, all the years I played, uh, I can't, I can't think, you know, in the early years, we pretty much podium every single year in a world, every year, men and women. It just seemed like it was that way. Last 10 years, not so much in the last five, hardly at all. Like it just seems like it's, it just seems like it's getting harder because it is getting harder and harder. The other thing that's, tough is and and i always talk about this point is when you put that maple leaf in your back there's still this unbelievable amount of pressure to perform well because of our history and when you put that maple leaf in your back when you go there it could be the last time you're ever going to get there and because we still have some great teams that are you know following along and want to want to beat you and can beat you other countries, and I, I people that may not like this, but the Nicholas Adines of the world, he gets to go to the Worlds every year. It's guaranteed. He's going to go every year. So if he comes sixth, eh, next year he can come fourth, fourth, and next year he can win it, and the year after that he gets third. and So he gets 100 tries at it. And I know, and please, I don't want to come across disrespecting Nicholas Adine because he could be the GOAT right now. He's what he's, I just used him as an example, but he gets to go a lot. Uh, Bruce Mowat is going to be able to go a lot. Um, uh, Joel Retornez is going to go a lot. Um, uh, Alina Petz is going to go a lot. Kerry Einerson, Kevin Cooey, Botcher, Kusher are no guarantee they're ever going to go back. They most likely will, but there's no guarantee because we have such depth to be able to, you know. And, and when you get there, you think, oh, my God, we have to perform well here because this might be my last chance. So there's so much more pressure put on that Maple Leaf because of that. I don't feel like it's as much on the other countries because they, they can, again, I'm not saying win or lose, but they, they have the opportunity to go back next year. It's like, yeah, we'll get them next time. Well, for Joe Blow in Canada, might not ever be a next time. So, boy, you better perform now. Maybe that's playing on us a little bit. I do believe we've slightly underperformed at the national, at the world level recently. Um, but it's not because we didn't send our best teams. They just didn't quite play to their abilities. And that's kind of the way I see it. So, uh, it's a whole different play. Whereas back in the day, you know, 20 years ago, you could play average and win a whole bunch of games at Worlds. And if you played good, you win, you win Worlds. And I lived it. 
And uh, so it's, it's, you know, you just got to get, get yourself to playoffs and then maybe bring it up a notch today. You can play really damn good and not even make playoffs. So it's that much harder than it, than it was years ago. You just touched on an interesting point, Glenn. A couple of years ago when I was chatting with Brad Gushu, he mentioned that one of the reasons why his team has had success at events like the Briar and Worlds is that their B game is good enough for them to be competitive even when they don't have their A game. You've played at that level, Glenn. How difficult is it to tweak your approach during an event or even mid-game when you don't have access to your A game for whatever reason, whether it's ice conditions or just the fact that you're not feeling it on that given day? First of all, it's super hard for most, and uh, but the, the the champions, the best curlers in the world, best athletes in the world, have an ability to make that change, and make that adjustment. I guess is a better word. And and you know, I, I totally agree with what Brad's saying. Is is you know, his, their B game is still really really good, and that's where that consistency um, aspect comes in. I was talking about their that team is a perfect example of always really quite good. They can be awesome. But other times they can be most, they very rarely are they crap. I don't, you just don't ever see them play badly. So if, if their B game is still really good, boy, you're going to win a ton of curling games. Because not everybody can keep it at the, the highest level all the time, not even them. But if their B game is really good, you win a ton of games, you, you sneak your way through, you, 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 you know, smoke and mirrors a couple of games here and there, you figure something out, you're still in it. All of a sudden, you find something, and the you, you know they, everything clicks, and they bring the A game, and now they start winning and beating everybody, and that you know that's why they're champions, and that's why you know teams can consistently get back there, consistently win. Um, I felt we were we were teams like that as well when we win our day. We we had a we we very rarely had crappy games back when we were doing our runs in the you know I even go back to the nineties with my brother and and. The, um, you know, in the, the mid two thousands, early two thousands, with with my with Richie and Brent and Craig, and uh, we didn't have poor games. We we didn't. We just you know we had average games, but then we were still pretty good. And then when we got it going, look out! Um, and that's what I'm seeing. It. But today, today your B game better be good because <laughs> uh, a lot of these uh, a lot of these I'm seeing I'm seeing so many other teams. And you know, Joel Returnas is one that pops into my head. I haven't even seen a B game out of him. Like, it's just, it's like A to A plus all the time. And it's like, oh, that's impressive. And it's hard to beat that. You know, if they're doing that all the time, it's impressive. I want to ask you about Joel Retornaz and the Italians, uh, Glenn. Retornaz had a decent team capable of an upset or two for about a decade, as your brother Russ would remember from the 2006 Olympics. But it wasn't a team that would challenge for a world championship or slam titles. All of a sudden, over the past couple of seasons, Team Retornaz have become world beaters. What have you seen during their transformation, Glenn, that has allowed them to reach the top of the world rankings? Uh, I see a a few things. I see they've clearly worked their tail off. they are all for throwing the rock really nicely. Like it is, it is just, you could just see it's like poetry motion. It's just fluid coming out of the hand. They're, they're incredibly confident right now. Uh, it just, I see it in Joel's face. It's just like, just, I'm going to make everything. And I can see it with his players. They're so pumped. They're so uh, attuned to the game and they're, they're focused. Uh, it's impressive to watch. And then last but not least, the sweeping um, uh, has been unbelievable. I've seen them, manipulate rocks like i've never seen before and that that's an testament to to you know they're big they're strong they're incredible shape and they know what they're doing um i think part of it too is when you know you've got a good sweeping team your confidence raises big time because you know ah, if i don't throw it just perfectly the boys can make it 
And I think when that happens, it frees up your throw. It frees up how you, th- you let it go, and you end up throwing the rock very well anyway. So now you've got this little bit of sweeping. You make a ton of shots. There's no stress in the throws. And I really noticed that with, with Joel himself. Now, his other three guys were just have just been amazing. I didn't expect – I knew they were going to get better all that. I didn't expect them to rise as quickly as they have. Uh, and it's impressive to watch. We've we've uh, we've fortunately played them a couple times this year already, and uh, they're 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 unreal. And it's just like nothing phases them right now. It's like bring it on, um, and that's what it, it's incredible. So I think all those little things I just talked about that's what's made them. And they've clearly worked their tail off because they're they basically throw the rock the same all the time. And again, consistent throwing will make for a lot of shots. To be perfectly honest, Glenn, uh, being in the zone is something that most average curlers will never experience. Uh, you were in the zone similar to the one team of Tornas is in this year, back in 2007 or 2008. What does it feel like to be in that type of zone where you feel like you can make any shot? It, it's, it's, it's euphoric. It's just, it's, it's, you just can't believe It's almost an out-of-body experience, and that may sound silly, but it's this... I think what, what, when our teams were able to get there, and I know me personally, everything was clear. Every, there was no foggy. There was no question. There was none. Everything was just clear. I could see, I could see the 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 the, the path the rock was going to make. I could smell. My brother and I used to kid. We used to smell draw weight. I could smell draw weight. I could. It was just this unbelievable feeling of I can't miss, and I'm just going to make everything. And it, it's not that you you don't miss. It's just that you're just so confident when you want to throw that everything just is easy. There's no stress in the bones. There's no stress between the ears. You just go out and make shots. And it's like, it's almost, you, 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 you're unbelievable. You make shots. You think, how did, and sometimes you go, how did that happen? And, and nothing's foggy. You almost don't even concentrate. You just sort of let, because you know exactly when to let the rock go. You know exactly where to throw it. Cause you know how to make that shot. Cause you just visualize it and you could see it clearly. It's when you lose confidence that all of a sudden more stuff comes into your head, comes into play, it gets foggy, you're not sure, you question it. That's usually what most of us curlers do because you just it's hard to get in that zone and, and you just wish you could harness it. You just wish you could. And it's not, a, it's not necessarily because you practiced 800 times in the last two weeks. It's, it's all between the ears. It's all about you know, having the confidence to be able to make the shot and, and think clearly and don't stress about it and just try and try and be good and, and do the best you can sort of thing, whatever. But it's, it is an amazing feeling and it really is. And it's to your point, you go out there thinking, God, if we keep doing this and we're doing, I, don't, I can't see us losing. And with that, just that attitude, you're going to win a lot more games because of it. Was it in 2007 or 2008, Glenn, when you were in that, that zone and your team got on that roll at the Briar and then at the Worlds? I can't remember off the top of my head. 2007 was probably for me personally, and I think my team. When we went, the, the best was actually uh, the Worlds uh, in 2007. In 2000, we, you know, we, we, we won the Briar, obviously, had a heck of a game against Brad Goose to win it. But when we went to Worlds, we, the four of us, I could honestly say, I've never seen anything like it where we just, it was unbelievable. Like every game, every time we had hammer, we scored a deuce or more. It was just ridiculous. And we were, we would have been really, really upset had we not won the whole thing. Cause just the way we, we were playing, the way we were in that zone, the way we were, everything was coming together. And sometimes you get, and, and you, sometimes you get breaks that way too. Like you maybe get a shot that shouldn't happen and you just sort of run with it. And uh, that was probably the best for me personally. And I think with my guys as well. 
Glenn, there was a time when players often took their first slides on tour by playing front end and would then move on to third and skip after gaining some experience. A prime example of this was your brother's team with you and Wayne Madon and Peter Corner, with all three of you all going on to skip at one or more briars. That upward movement in a lineup doesn't happen much anymore. Do you view that as a good or a bad thing, or is it simply a sign of where the sport is at when it comes to specialization? I, I think you're going to see more of the way you, I think it's being more specialized because it's so hard to crack, you know, top four, top eight, even. How do you crack that crew, those teams, men and women? How do you crack into those teams? You're not going to put four young guys together and just all of a sudden do it. So you got to, you got to jump in. You got to be specialized. I think is what's coming to uh, more more than ever. And you, because there's no, you, you can't have a broken cog in the in the wheel. You can't have a weak link today. You just have to be. You have to have four amazing players. And if it means specializing as a second, then to get there, that's what you're going to have to do. And uh, I, I'm going to. I think you're going to see less and less of that progression unless it comes down to a uh, uh, you know a skipper tires. Uh, uh, and then, you know, this, the natural one is maybe that third moves on or you pick up another skip. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more of that specialization because of the fact. And I think, you know, the top tier is is breaking away from the, the you know, it's called the A tier versus the B tier. It's breaking away. And I think it's going to be more predominant in the future um, because part of the reason is I think the lower tiers are are finding it hard to break into that. And they're, they're going to go, oh, God, what, uh, you know, is this worth it? Is this worth putting all this time and money and effort? I can't break into that top tier. Uh, I could, I totally understand where that could come from. And uh, that may be the case. Uh, it's sort of the way it's worked in pretty much every other country in the world. They have their top few teams and that's it. And somehow you got to pay your dues and, and hang in there and, and move your way up. Canada, we can't do that because we have so many good curlers, but uh, I can still see it uh, kind of a two-tiered system and, uh, the 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 B tier you're going to go geez I've got it or somehow maybe you're a you know, really good player and you you get lucky and you get jump on one of those teams in the A tier and you better be really good at that position because that's where you're going to be or you're out um, and it's it's ruthless now right it's hard to, there's no it's not a hundred percent loyalty to a team anymore than it used to be it's like perform paper performance if you're not very good you're going to be gone. So whether it's right or wrong, I don't know what's good for the game when it comes to that, Frank, but I think that's the way it's going to go, whether we like it or not. Moving on to your coaching gig for a moment, Glenn. Uh, You knew Jen Jones before you ever stepped in to coach her team. Uh, She's married to one of your ex-teammates, and I'm sure you crossed paths many times on and off the ice over the years. As well as you knew Jen before joining her team, I'm wondering if anything about her approach to the sport has surprised or impressed you. A, a great, great question, and and I do have an answer. Um, I was, I was so, I've been so impressed over the last two years with her uh, first knowledge of everything about our sport. Like I knew that she was very knowledgeable, but I, the, the little thing, she just doesn't miss out on anything when it comes to everything. All aspects from technical to strategy to to uh, uh, you know every ice to it was unbelievable and. And even more impressed with her ability to rise to the occasion. Um, that is why, in my opinion, she's the GOAT. Um, you know, every time we got ourselves in trouble, Jen would make, make this unbelievable shot. And I witnessed it over the years, but firsthand, right as a coach, unbelievable ability to, 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 to make the big shot when she had to. And uh, that was, that's what impressed me the most. Those two major things, what impressed me the most. Um, and uh, she's been, she's been a lot of fun to, to, to be a part of. And I've, I've sort of just 
riding her coattails. It just she's uh, she's just so good and so knowledgeable. Um, it's just very impressive. The three young ladies who are playing on Team Jones with uh, Jen have essentially gotten a master class from one of the greats over the past season and a half, uh, Glenn. You've seen the group together both in games and in practice. What are these three young ladies taking from their experience with Jen that will most help them as they progress in their careers? I, I think um, the biggest thing and the number one thing is how to win. And that is that is something that you, you it's hard to teach. But you can, over time, you can understand how how to win, and it's it's a, it's a it's an interesting statement because you think, well, how do you what? There's there's you do this this and this to win. Well, no, not in that situation, but in in other situations, you do this this and this. And Jen is a master of that. Like uh, she could be, she could go into a situation with crappy ice. She knows how to win. She go in with perfect ice. She knows how to win. She knows she gets down three. She knows how to win. At least make an attempt at it. Like there's she just knows how to win. And I think that's the girls are understanding that out of it um if if you make it, you know, all the right shots at the right time you're you know good things are going to happen um you know both jen and i've worked really hard with the, the three of them on technical i think they've learned a lot about how to throw a rock how to release a rock um and again when you're you're getting advice from the goat uh if you don't you know take you know if you're not a sponge and understanding that there's something wrong but those three girls are, are marvelous at that and they've they understand it how um, valuable and how um, how much they're they're learning from Jen. It, it's absolutely incredible. Finally, Glenn, I watched Team Jones play at a slam a few weeks ago and noticed that Emily Zacharias was in the house calling a line when Jen was throwing, which I don't think is something that Emily has done in the past, whether in juniors or on the women's tour. What has the learning curve been like for Emily so far, and how impressed have you been with her progression in that role? Yeah, so that it's that's a good point because it's something we uh, we talked about at the beginning of the year. What's the best uh, lineup? And um, Jen really, really enjoyed. Thought that Lauren and Carly were such good judges of the rock and uh, kind of a little bit, maybe a little bit more experienced than 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 Emily at that time. So she really liked that idea. So we put Emily in the house and calling the line. And that was you know, a big job for her because to your point, she hasn't done it very much. And she's not the most demonstrative person. She doesn't, she's not loud and boisterous and screams and yells. And so that's something she's had to learn is to be, you know, we both, Jen and myself have told her, said, use your gut. If, if you think it needs sweeping, bellow it out, start yelling. And it took her a little bit, I think, to get comfortable, but I, I'm seeing it more and more as the year goes on, she's getting more confident. You know, she, I think she was a little nervous to be wrong. You know, I think she was a little nervous that, you know, I don't want to make a mistake here. So she'd be a little quiet when sailing, but she's really getting to the point now where it doesn't go give it, give it your best shot. Gut feels usually the right, really usually uh, right more often than not. And so she does that and she's getting better and better at that. Uh, so I think the transitions worked out really well. Um, Jen's pretty happy with it. Um, she's pretty happy the way uh, that Emily has adjusted the position. But to your point, it is a new position, and it is a, it's a, an important one. You've got to be able to call line and call uh, uh, sweeping when you, uh, at the right time. So um, right now, that's where I think we're sticking with that plan. We haven't talked about making any changes because it isn't broken. So uh, we're, we're pretty happy with that. And uh, um, Emily has embraced the position and has done a great job. My next guest is Kayla Skurlick, whose team has avoided the sophomore jinx in their second season together, backing up last year's Scotty's appearance by winning three tour events this season already. 
Kayla, your team is fresh off its third title win of the season, but looking at your record, it certainly does seem like it's been a little bit of feast or famine for the team. It seems like you're either winning the whole event or leaving the party a day early by missing the playoffs. Can you provide some context? Because numbers and results don't often provide a full picture. Oh, man, yeah. Our year started out good. We won our first event, and then we went through a little bit of change technically, and... uh I don't know if you know this, but Calgary doesn't get ice until September. So we hopped into our season sort of without a lot of prep. Uh, went to a bunch of hard events and didn't seem to qualify in them. Uh, I don't know if I would call it uh, <laughs> leaving early. We just we just had a rough October. And then we seemed to pick it up in November and December. And we're hoping to sort of ride the wave for a little bit longer. But, yeah, no, we had sort of a J-curve learning moment. Uh with some new te- technical we introduced in September, and we seem to be doing okay now. We seem to be back and comfortable, which is well, a good place to be. Were the technical changes a result of seeing some things once the season had started, uh, Kayla, or was it something you had planned to do but couldn't implement during the off-season because uh, perhaps there wasn't that ice availability, as you mentioned uh, just a little bit earlier? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. We talked uh, with our coaches and sort of came into – a place where we wanted to all be throwing the same, uh, which I think is still still really relevant in what we do. Um, and then that took a little bit of technical change to get there. Uh, unfortunately, it changed the way I delivered a little bit, and it sucks when your skip isn't throwing well. <laughs> so um, I had a little bit more of a struggle with it than the rest of the girls, and it resulted in a little bit of struggle in events um, at the beginning of the season, honestly. Okay, Kayla, as Skip, were you not able to pull rank and tell your teammates to learn to throw the way you do so you wouldn't have to change your uh, your delivery? <laughs> Maybe on other teams, but uh, no, I don't think on my team. We just wanted to throw, uh, all throw well. Unfortunately, I just had a rough start. Just a bit earlier, uh, Kayla, you provided the excellent context explaining why your team's results have been slightly inconsistent to start the season. I'm curious, though, when you're winning events, what is typically going well for Team Skirlik? Yeah, I think, um, you know, our team does a really good job at uh, keeping our routine. We sort of have a lot of systems in place to make sure, you know, we're fed, fueled, rested, going into events. Um in addition, I think it's our third year together. We're all very familiar with each other. Uh, so we sort of all need different things from a player perspective. Um, and as long as, as long as we're comfortable out there, I think it, I think it works out very well. Uh, yeah, we're, we're used to playing together by now, our third year. Uh, we've had a lot of success, and we know how to get success. But most of the time, it's just being comfortable, having fun out there as a team, um and going back to our systems when things are maybe not going exactly how they want to go now when things start to going sideways in the game kayla as they do for all teams at some point during an event what are your go-to's uh do you start focusing on technical a little bit more do you take deep breaths between uh, between ends to regain your focus what's the approach for your team when things do start going sideways a little bit during a game or or perhaps uh, even an end I think it's honestly to stay positive um, and just we come together at the end of every end and just to find something that we can focus on that's positive going into the next end is is something we are really, really trying hard to do this season. Uh, We had a little bit of a stumble in the middle part where, you know, things weren't going well for a couple of events. So remaining positive is a little bit harder. 
but you know they're all good curlers we're good curlers so we found we were just able to find something to hold us together and focus on you know that was positive and uh, could keep us going <laughs> Kayla the last time that you and I chatted was just before you left for your first career at Scotty's last season what were your big takeaways from your first Scotty's experience Oh, man. My first experience at the Scotties was a little bit of a whirlwind. Uh, I was just super excited uh, to be there, I think. Um, But, yeah, no, it took – it was a little bit different than the rest of our events. There was a lot more media. There was a lot more distractions, live audience. Uh, A bunch of our fans came. I think Alberta had one of the largest crowds. So it took a bunch to get used to, I would say. We dropped our first two events, our first two games and had to sort of grind back uh, to get into the playoff mix again. And then we we just missed it. But if I were to go back, I think I wouldn't have as many of those, you know, pre-event nerves where I'm just sort of being bustled around from one interview to the next. Uh, I would, uh, you know, have some systems, be more focused going into it. And honestly, uh, you sort of just have to experience it once. And then it becomes more familiar, I think, like going into points bet, going into the tier two slam, it was easier to have the fans around us opposed to, you know, the first time when you're at the Scotties wearing the team Alberta gear and you're sort of deer in the headlights. It was uh, something that our coaches definitely told Ashton and I about, Jerry and Brittany definitely told Ashton and I about, but unless you experience it, you don't really know (laughs) how you're going to react until you're in it. Jerry Ramsey from your team had played in the 2010 Scotties, reaching the final with her team out of PEI. How did she lean on her experience to help you and your sister navigate an event in the Scotties that has been described to me as a different animal than any other event the women play during the season? Yeah, I think uh, Jerry and Brittany had both sort of done it before, and they were very understanding of the, you know, deer in the headlights, sort of for Scotties excitement feeling, uh, which was good. You know, some teams maybe would get annoyed that Ash and I were just vibrating with excitement, but, no, they handled it really well. Uh, In addition, Jerry and Britt really had, like, a a one-game-at-a-time mindset, which helps when you're going into a sort of a long week, uh, especially when you drop your first game and have a lot of good games. Like, the Scotties last year was an insanely strong field. Um, So you just, you know that you're going to have to win against a lot of people that are tough to beat. Um, so they really went in with sort of what I consider like a resilient mindset where, you know, they could say, okay, we're doing it one game at a time. This is how many games it'll take us to qualify. We still have a shot. Luckily we were in a position where we had a shot to make playoffs pretty much the whole time we were at the Scotties. Uh, so it's a little bit easier, but yeah, no, their, their mindset going into the Scotties was just, was just really, really comforting. Finally, Kayla, your team is part of a group of Alberta teams that find themselves grouped relatively close to each other in the standings. As we speak, you're ranked somewhere between 24th and 29th, all four of you uh, in the world rankings. How motivating is it for your team to be part of a tightly bunched group where you have to be at your best when you play each other? Because those are the teams you're going to have to beat to get back to the Scotties this year. Yeah, no, I think it's great. Um, Alberta, I grew up in a age in Alberta where it was incredibly hard to go to nationals. I think it still is hard in the junior circuit and the U18 circuit. You can just look at team plats. So playing against Selena, Sturme, uh, Serena Grayweathers, even like Jesse Hunkins team, uh, they're all, they're all great competitors. And honestly, I think it just makes us all improve. 
Uh, Selena was in the uh, semifinal last year. Now she has a new team, and I think she'll be back and better than ever. Serena Grayweathers is having an amazing run this year, and I played a lot of their girls out of uh, juniors as well, and so is Ashton. Um, Jerry, Brittany, Ashton, I definitely have conversation rides on the way to and from events on how uh, how hard our age divisions seem to be. Our uh, old competitors just seem to be haunting us as we grow up. We've played with, uh, like I know Jerry and Brittany has played with members of Team Hunkin's team. I've played with Selena a little bit and definitely against her a lot throughout the years. And Ashton played against Serena Grayweathers a lot in her junior years as well. So, no, it's the same girls. And uh, honestly, it's encouraging. It's nice. It's nice to see, you know, my age group stick with it a little bit in curling and have a success as a group in the sport. Like Selena had has just made, she won an event as well and made the final in the Red Deer event. And Serena Grayweathers made the final in the Takao event recently. So, you know, it's not bad to see the younger generation sort of step up and show people what we can do. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Glenn Howard and Kayla Skrillick for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network. The Two Girls in the Game Podcast, the Rock Logic Podcast, and the Curling Legends Podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.